outside when there's blood in the streets. Uh, lift up, check under the carpet. Many tried, but few become master of the mark market. Well, Stephen Arnold, we had you on Talk Your Book, and now we get the double for uh, coming on Masters of the Market. So thanks very much for, for giving us your time. Thank you, Chris. Thanks very much. And how are you feeling? It's a it's pretty crazy time in the world more broadly. How are you feeling around coronavirus and, and managing your team? How's the, the temperature check for you at the minute? Well, personally, I feel quite healthy. Yeah. Uh, in terms of investing, like, I think this is absolutely the time to own high-quality businesses with you know, all of the conservative characteristics we'll be talking about. Um, and what you, what you don't own, I think, is at least as important as what you do own. So we can get into all of that. But uh, um, for uh, uh, owning equities, owning wealth-creating vehicles, I think now's a, now's a great time. Uh, but it's important to think carefully about what you don't own. And in terms of those broad investment philosophies, you've touched on some of them there. What, what sort of principles does AORUS use when they're looking to invest in different businesses? Well, first and foremost, we see ourselves as owners of businesses, uh, not owners of markets. We've got no view on market levels and we're certainly not economists. And so we've got no view on central bank uh, Can't you just tell me what's going to happen, Stephen? Yeah. I'm desperate here. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Let, me, let me grab the, the, the AFR, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> Uh, so we, we try and keep things as simple as possible and we focus on owning businesses, um, not wearing multiple hats and being economists, being market timers. Uh, we don't certainly own short stocks and uh, we, we very simply just own businesses. Uh, we own a small number of them and so we cap the number of own, uh, holdings in our portfolio at 15. Uh, our mandate's the World Access Australia, so I've got a huge uh, sandbox, if you like, from which to, to find these wonderful businesses uh, and we want to own those that uh, have got good growth opportunities. Um, so, you know, it's a combination of high levels of profitability and typically owning leading businesses in markets where being the leader matters, uh, which is not all businesses. And so those are some of the things that you know, define, the, define our businesses. Some of the businesses, uh, someone would look and go, well, I know exactly what those guys do. I know I can get a sense of what's special about them. Others are less well-known businesses, but it's often it's quite exciting to sort of pull back the layers and explain you know, what makes a, a business, you know, like Syntas we talked about on uh, Talkie Book, what makes that a special business. And you're a, a young fund, but so far a, a very high-performing fund. I think in 2019, you were Morningstar's International Value Fund of the Year, if my memory serves correctly. I thought we'd, we'd, we'd tailor this talk a lot around high performance, high performance of a fund and, and of a business. And I guess a good place to start would be uh, Aorus's Edge. You're in big companies that are really well researched and uh, researched by lots of groups around the world. Where do you see Aorus's Edge in investing in these public companies? Yeah, I, I think uh, where, where the edge doesn't lie is in information. So I, I don't think investing philosophically is about uh, information edge. If that was the case, then the biggest investment teams would win or the investors that read the most broker notes, visited the most companies, you know, did the most detailed spreadsheets uh, would, would generate outperformance. And I just don't think there's any evidence that that's the case. And so I think where, where edge comes from is in making good judgments. Um, and you don't need uh, the most information to make best judgments. So I think for us, a few of the, the mindset characteristics that help us make better judgments are um, you know, keeping things as simple as possible and as, you know, talk about not trying to be economists, not trying to be market timers, not actively managing currency, um, making fewer ju judgments, so simple judgments and few of them. So owning 15 stocks, I think we've got a much better chance of making 15 good judgments than we have of making 50 or 60 or 80 or 100. Not, tr not trying to be experts, so we don't own biotech businesses where we think you know, these guys have solved a particular health problem. 
Um, I think recognising um, where um, we, we are what we call evidence-based investors and so we pay a lot of attention to history. We've got to probably or try and have a, a more well-defined sense of, of probabilities where the odds are on our side. Now one way that feeds very directly into our investment process is, is, is actively uh, trying to uh, what we call stay out of the bottom 20%, avoid the types of businesses that, it, that end up in that bottom 20%. In order to do that, one, one of our edges, if you like, is being willing to be more different from the market than most investors. So we won't own banks ever. We won't own energy or mining companies ever. Um, and there's some good reasons. We don't like the leverage. We don't like the cyclicality, the importance of externalities, whether it's economic cycles or interest rates or commodity prices. So being simple, being making uh, fewer judgments and being willing to be more different from the market than most investors, I think are three important contributors to our success to date. And was that philosophy around resource companies and banks something you'd had for a number of years or was there a point during an event like the GFC or uh, the resources bust, what was it, in 2011 or whenever it was, that, that led you to those strong conclusions? How long have you held those views that those stocks were ones to be avoided? Yeah, well, uh, I've been managing portfolios with those same exclusions uh, since the beginning of 2011. Um, but I was, incidentally, the banks analyst at a Goldman Sachs buy side team in London through the GFC. Um, and earlier in my career, I was a tech analyst during the TNT bust. Uh, so having experienced you know, some of those busts, I think is quite helpful. Uh, having that um, uh, institutional or personal memory, if you like, of you know, where, where asset prices can get quite detached from reality. And then feeding it back into not trying to be, if you like, a better banks analyst, but being willing to say, look, let's just avoid that part of the market altogether and we'll make better judgments if we fish from a smaller fishing pool, um, a more defined set of businesses that don't have those um, cyclicality or the influence of externalities. And that you know, requires a, a mindset where you're just willing to A, be an independent thinker and be willing to be quite different from the market. Is that a challenge? Because you must have good ability to analyse bank stocks, being a, a bank an analyst when you compare yourself to your peers. was. That a challenge saying I've got this skill set here or what you saw the banks doing was it just so bad you thought I never need to go near that uh, again? Well I think maybe the maybe a way of sort of painting a picture of that is uh, for a lot of investors they're always looking to grow their circle of competence. They yeah. feel like yeah, every year they're masters of more things. Uh, they looked at more sectors, more businesses, more countries and, and what I've found over time is a willingness to if you like every year get a little bit smaller in my circle of confidence and trim the sales if you like where um, a more refined understanding each year of the types of businesses that are best avoided, where the, the likelihood of making a bad judgment higher, um, and the willingness to forego the, you know, the doubles and triples and quadruples, because oftentimes I think when investors are, are, are chasing those outsized payoffs, the, the Peter Lynch 10 baggers, then there's a lot of mistakes that they make along the way. Um, so for me personally, um, you know, what, what, what's, what stood out to me strongest during the GFC was there was a period in the UK when the Bank of England would make emergency lending facilities available each night to banks that put up their hand and said, we can't fund ourselves in wholesale markets. And the next day, the Bank of England would release a press release and say that you know, someone tapped our emergency lending facility or, or not, uh, but they wouldn't identify which bank had tapped it. Now, then each time during that period of crisis that the, someone had tapped the facility, there'd be this mad ring around to all the banks by all the market participants that morning to say, was it you? Now, there's only one answer that the banks could give you, and which is no, because if, if the bank that had been unable to fund themselves 
put up their hands and said to the market, yeah, it was us. Uh, we went to the Bank of England cap in hand because we couldn't fund ourselves and the business would shut. So when you think about it, who wants to own a business that in times of crisis, then the only, the only thing that they can do is, is lie to you. Uh, and then post that, of course, all of the, the misbehavior in banks domestically in Europe and the US has told you that the ability to understand these businesses as well as an outsider is very, very limited. You know, they're just very opaque businesses. And I'm sure even as an insider, uh, the executives don't know all that they'd like to know. So for us, we're just willing to say, um, you know, there, are, there are going to be times when those parts of the market do well, and we're willing to forego that in order to protect client capital, avoid the big losses that you know, banks will periodically incur and, and, and fish elsewhere to make better judgments. And so 15 stocks in the portfolio, what happens? There's an analyst in your team or you come across a company and you go, well, this is better than anything we've got in our portfolio. We've done 18 months of work on it. The CEO is a, a weapon. It's wildly underpriced. I like it better than any of the 15. Have you got your 15 companies ranked uh, as you're going along around 1 to 15 or this is the one we ditch if we find a number one or if you're happy with all 15, do you just wait till it's a more appropriate time to sell one before bringing in the newcomer? Yeah, we've, we've um, a few things to, to uh, answer that question. We've got a, a bench, it's a two tier bench and an A and the B list. And the A's are what we consider to be as good as what's in the portfolio, just not as cheap as. And, and as the market comes back, that, that introduces competitive tension. There's going to be stocks on the A list that get closer to a buy price and, and then and choice is good. The more we want more degrees of freedom and when, the, when um, more stocks are, are buyable and then it's a trade-off between um, what's our least attractive stock in the portfolio and our most attractive A list. Now, as so you how said- how many are on the A list? That's uh, also capped at 25. Okay. And so having a, having a hard ceiling in the portfolio introduces A, simplicity, because yeah. you know, we're not debating our 18th or 25th best stock. Um, and two, it keeps our criteria very high. Um, if we were introducing our 20th stock, that's probably not gonna be as good as our 15th stock. And so we like to operate with very demanding quality criteria combined with uh, valuation hurdles. And uh, the higher you set those hurdles, the fewer the stocks get through it. And we're very, very comfortable operating with fewer outstanding businesses rather than owning more businesses that are just necessarily gonna be just less good. And that's another important way. We're quite different from most people who are uncomfortable owning as few businesses as we do. Now, as a team of few things to notice, look, it's a very collaborative culture, deliberately collaborative. We think we'll make our best judgments if we work together, as opposed to a, like a federation where each analyst works independently. Um, two, we're all generalists. You know, we don't want people to be specialists. We want everyone to look at businesses across the, the sectors that we consider interesting. Um, and thirdly, where there's, there's similar businesses, we give them to different analysts uh, to look at, which is a somewhat counterintuitive or unconventional approach. We happen to own L'Oreal in the portfolio if we're looking at business that they compete with, rather than giving that peer uh, to the same analyst that covers L'Oreal, we give it to someone else. And we think that we'll benefit from uh, different perspectives and it helps to counter the natural human biases that come in when you know, someone's looking at a stock that competes with what's in their portfolio. There's probably a natural uh, resistance to looking at that stock as objectively as we do that one that's in the portfolio. So by giving it to different analysts, it introduces um, you know, some objectivity that we wouldn't get otherwise. And I hear fund managers say that a great analyst doesn't always make a, a great fund manager. Firstly, do you agree with that? And, and if so, why or why not? Um, I guess some of the characteristics that are necessary for a um, for a fund manager, um, now there's a level of decisiveness that's important. Um, there's a level of um, objectivity about their own stocks. You know, sometimes the best stock to sell might be the one that you're responsible for. 
Um, but we, we want all of the people in our investment team to think like PMs and to think like owners, as opposed to some buy side teams where you probably operate more like sell side on making recommendations into the PM and you, know, you may or may not accept it. Maybe I'll get compensated based on the performance of my recommended stocks. Uh, so we want everyone to think like um, we own the portfolio and we're contributing to uh, the investment decisions. It's you know, client capital. It's not a, an abstract concept. We're not, uh, as I said, making you know, stronghold recommendations as sometimes you get on the sell side. So is it fair that for an analyst to become a good fund manager, they've got to have the analyst skill set with enough psychological mouse to be able to pull the trigger, not get too attached to winners? Is it that psychological piece that some analysts can struggle making the jump? Uh, yeah, I think the psychology, um, plus also you know, t time in the market is helpful as well. Yeah. You know, having lived through different different cycles and um, and learning from your own mistakes. You know, that's what we also work very hard to introduce in our team is a an appetite for continuous improvement, an appetite to learn from your mistakes. Now, we don't want to be the type of um, investors that are a bit like drivers, where every every accident you've ever had was someone else's fault. Um, you know, there's always things to learn when stocks don't perform as expected, and we work very hard to learn them. And if we can be just a, a fraction better every year, then cumulatively over time, that's very powerful. And so that's part of our you know, institutional culture, if you like, is to learn hard. And that requires that collegiality, you know, humility, um, and uh, you know, a sort of sense of you know, collective improvement rather than you know, people operating as independent silos. You mentioned earlier on about avoiding the, the bottom 20% stocks in, in the market. You didn't touch on uh, your belief around um, win rate in terms of which investments you invest in that, that go up. Do you want to talk through that investment philosophy and maybe your numbers around win rate, which are, um, which are, are pretty incredible? Yeah, look, yeah the, the, the two ways that we think most about measuring our own performance and we think which will reflect in good client outcomes over time are you know, the two ones you've touched on. What the win rate, which is what percentage of stocks have we owned that have outperformed or done better than the market during the period we've owned them? Uh, and the second one, the other side of the same coin is what percentage of stocks have we owned that have been in the bottom 20% of the market during the period we've owned it? Now, if we take the bottom 20% first, if we have 20% of our stocks in the bottom 20%, well, that will be average. Um, we, we've had zero. And that comes, uh, well, it's helped by uh, our willingness to be very different from the market and very selective about what we own. Um, if, if you own businesses that have made big acquisitions, in the prior five years, you're far more likely, far more likely to be in the bottom 20% than if you've owned businesses that have just grown at a more conservative rate. If you own businesses with high levels of financial gearing, you're much more likely to be in that bottom 20%. If you own a business that's lost money, uh, at some point in the last five years, you're much more likely to be in the bottom 20%. Does that stand true if you've made an acquisition after the market's dropped 50%? Well, yes, yeah, so, so just statistically. Now, there's always. Any acquisition is risky, though, statistically. Yeah, and it's the, the, the bigger they are. And yeah. so, um, one, one way we measure is the growth in issued shares. If you issued it, shares that are equal to more than 50% of your capital base over a five year period, and that speaks to large acquisitions. Um, and oftentimes, you're introducing a lot of complexity, systems complexity, people complexity uh, that ultimately ends in, in bad outcomes. Um, so that's that's number one ratio. And for us, look, if you if you do know better than that or know different than that, and avoid that bottom twenty percent, uh, on average over time, it will be about be about six percent better than the market. So there's a huge performance uplift. And again, psychologically, most investors are are following the Peter Lynch. They want the ten baggers, 
um, it's much more fun to talk about at the barbecue your 10 bagger um, than avoiding the bottom no 20%. No one stands around and listens when you talk about how you avoided the bottom 20% of the barbecue. It's all about that. I know, I've tried it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it just doesn't have the same uh, level of excitement. Yeah. It doesn't get the, the blood pumping. But it's just so powerful. Uh, and not only is it powerful to your financial outcomes, it's very powerful psychologically. You know, when you've, you've got stocks that have halved or worsed and you're dealing with huge uncertainties, is this business got to recapitalise? Mm-hmm. You start to put a lot of mental energy into solving unsolvable problems. Uh, as an investment team, you really go into almost sort of defence or shutdown. It's hard to turn your mind to more productive um, move forward as you're, you're dealing with a car crash. Um, so f- that's very powerful financially, most importantly, but also psychologically. And then the other variable you touched on was what percentage of stocks have we owned that have outperformed the market, that success rate. Um, very few managers get more than you know, 50, 55% of their stocks right. Uh, the, the, the reason behind it is about twice as many stocks underperform the market as outperform in a given year. The, the distribution of the market is very asymmetric. Um, which is not what they teach you at university, or not certainly not what, they, not what they taught me at university, which was all about bell-shaped curves. Um, but for, for us, by maybe being, being very selective, trying to make fewer judgments, simpler judgments, um, owning these resilient, conservative businesses, we know we've got about two-thirds of our stocks have outperformed the market you know, through to the end of December. Um, so that's a good success rate, and it's helped to contribute to those good client outcomes you touched on. And so those, those investors that are chasing the 10-bagger, do so or should do so with the knowledge they're going to have some some big misses as well and I guess the skill set for those investors is to cut their misses before they get close to zero and double up on their 10 bagger before it becomes a 10 bagger so sizing investment becomes very important when you sh- you've got a win rate as high as yours is sizing still important or does it become a, a much more consistent way of sizing your investments? Sizing is important. Like I think the, the primary determinant to our outcomes will be have we owned the right businesses or not. Um, now across our 15 stocks, the, the largest amount of portfolio capital that we can have behind any one stock is 10%. And that's a, it's a hard ceiling. And the smaller ones tend to be you know, 3 to 4%. Um, but as the valuation gap widens, then you know, within the portfolio, we'll have more of the capital behind the cheaper stocks. Um, we're trying to keep it as simple as that. And do you think much about portfolio construction? You've spoken a lot about the bottom-up work you do on companies. How do you view uh, correlation in the portfolio? Yeah, well, we, 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 are, we like to own businesses with a lot of inherent diversification, and that tries to, I guess, the way, it's the way we deal with diversification. If we own a business like Accenture, across their, their revenue stream, they've got clients in pretty much every country in the world and from every part of the economy, including the public sector. So that creates robustness and, and resilience and, and breadth. Uh, I think if we owned you know, um, Accenture Brazil or Accenture Japan, then you, you've got to start thinking about correlations and um, businesses that have you know, very different revenue streams than that. So most of our businesses have that um, you know, breadth, economic breadth or breadth across their customer base. Um, and I think maybe it's a, um, a segue, and look, we sort of haven't touched on on cell discipline, and maybe that's a good way of, you know, for cor- correlation and portfolio sizing, we try and put a lot of discipline into that. That's, you know, the s- second word in cell discipline, I think is very important. And oftentimes um, it's hard, to, it's psychologically hard to, to deal with a stock that's not meeting expectations. It's always easy, easy behaviorally to say, well, management says next year will be fantastic or management blamed the weather uh, in that profit warning. 
and that's where for us we try as an investment team to uh, work very uh, collegiately and and uh, put a lot of humility behind that um, appraising businesses who either you know, they're not performing to our expectations and sometimes they look like the cheaper stocks sometimes once they've you know you think they're worth um, 25 times and at 18 times maybe uh, rather than being a, a signal to add capital to it it's a signal that the business is under pressure and we own businesses with what we consider to be huge moats and what we're hypersensitive to is evidence that the moats getting a bit smaller if you think about com consumer packaged goods businesses over the last 10 years whether it's coca-cola or procter and gamble st still uh, businesses with admirable moats just smaller than they once were and as that moat gets smaller it's just very very destructive for shareholders so it's it's the size of the moat and also the direction of the moat. We want, we want big moats that are getting bigger and that's where, what goes back to owning leading businesses in markets where size matter and as they get larger and gain share every year, that moat gets a bit stronger. And so big moats getting uh, directionally larger is what we're looking for rather than, and we've got to be hypersensitive to them going the other direction. You hear a lot of equity investors talk about stock prices are cheap or expensive relative to X, Y, Z. You know, relative to bonds is one that often comes up. As a manager that's uh, extremely focused on individual stocks, do you have those sorts of conversations with your team? And how do you view valuations compared to other asset classes? So somewhat differently from other managers, we haven't taken bond prices as an input into our portfolio evaluation. We don't say because bond prices have got lower the last, not only one year, but the last 10 years, that makes everything else worth more uh, because bond prices might reflect abnormalities. It might reflect you know, central bank concerns that the world's not in a great place, um, monetary stimulus, all sorts of things. So we've kept a, a constant view about um, our, our, our reference multiple. We don't do DCS or DDMs. We put a multiple on cash earnings, that multiple, uh, starting multiple, what, are these, what is an average business worth that hasn't changed in the last 10 years. Uh, that might make us different or more conservative than other investors, but I think that's a good place to be. And I thought we'd finish off with uh, three questions we ask all the guests. What was your first ever investment? Uh, my first ever investment was Orbital Engine Company. Wow. Uh, Ralph Sarich's. From WA. From WA, yeah. It's a thousand shares at $3.30. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, I sold at a loss. My boss at the time said it's, Far better to have your first personal investment, lose money than make money. Yeah. Um, and so that was a good learning experience. And what would be your advice to your 18 year old self, either investment advice or otherwise? Got a son, I'll be turning 18 in a few, in a few yeah. years. Um, look, yeah, think independently, um, you know, be conservative, um, try and be more scientific minded than the next guy and and you know, create feedback loops and create, create evidence and don't, don't, don't get caught up in the hype. Like this is an industry that loves to sell stories. Uh, the, the way that you can sell a, get on the phone and sell a stock stuff is wrap a story around it and often time that creates um, inflated expectations of the future and, and you know, all, all the stars have got to come together to realise that, uh, that story. So rather than paint pictures about what could happen, you know, try and be more conservative and look for businesses that have demonstrated what you think could happen over a long period of time and I think could be in a better place. And what's the most common mistake you see retail investors make? chase stories yeah yeah and that's because someone's trying to sell them a story <laughs> beautiful Stephen Arnold thanks very much for uh, for coming on loved it thank you Chris <laughs> <laughs> if you're enjoying Masters of the Market make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest Master of the Market Market Market, market.